Hi, this is Scott Mouts, author of Leading from the Middle, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Scott Mouts. Scott Mouts is a former P&G senior executive who successfully ran four separate multi-million dollar businesses. He's the author of three award-winning best-selling books as a former top columnist for Inc.com, where he drew two million readers a month and where he was named a top 50 leadership innovator. Scott serves as faculty at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business for executive education. Scott lives in San Diego, California, and is here to talk about his book, Leading from the Middle, a play book for managers to influence up, down, and across the organization. Welcome, Scott. Great to be here, Bill. Thank you so much. I'm excited to rock in, get started, and give value to your listeners. Of that, I have no doubt. Scott, when you were growing up, who is someone who influenced or inspired you? Yeah, that's an easy one. It's so true that for me, it's my mom and uh, whatever small amount of lizard brain I've been granted, I got from her. She's the smarts of the family. She was an executive at AT AT&T, and at the same time, she was able to raise four kids, four rambunctious kids, did so with grace and excellence, and really was my first exposure to leadership. I learned some very early principles from her about how to really create a culture and to be the kind of leader that others want to follow. So when you say you learned from her, Scott, were these stories that you heard at the dinner table, maybe after she got home at the end of the day and you exchanged how um, each of your days went, were these casual conversations? Where is it that you picked up some sense of how your mom brought and cultivated the culture at I think my mom was very smart about it, Bill. It actually started when I got a job in a a temp agency that got me placed at Citicorp Citibank, the building that I worked in, was actually maybe a block away from my mom's building. We started riding into work together, and she would use that quiet time to just tell me about how things were going at work and what she was learning. I'd always thought that maybe it was not planned. It was just something that we needed something to chat about on our way into work together. I've since come to learn that she found that as quiet time where she could connect with her son, of course, but also just find a kind of non-intrusive way to introduce me to the art of leadership and what she had been learning at work. It was those commutes that turned out to be very productive. That is amazing mentorship that your mom shared with you on a daily basis, the check-ins, learning to hear how she thought about her day. And the questions she asked you, I'm sure helped shape your own thinking and attitudes towards work. No doubt about it. She helped me understand early on that it's a lot about the kind of culture that you create and that you have an option. Leadership starts with a choice. It's not all about you. If you start from that place, of really believing that, it changes so much of how you act as a leader. I I learned that from her early. I bet there were also insights that you learned even earlier. Where are you in the the birth order of your siblings? Yeah, it's a good question. I have two older brothers and one younger sister. I I guess that make me a middle child. Maybe it makes me a middle child. My definition. So I got a chance to learn from my brother's mistakes and uh, try to teach my sister as much as I can, although she can teach me more than I could ever teach her these days. She's a school teacher and really good at it. So tell me, a lot of this information influence, a lot of the upbringing impacts us and carries ripple waves far beyond just the immediate years growing up. When you were in one of your first jobs, maybe in your 20s, early 30s, and you ran across a situation that was challenging and it made you think as to what steps you were going to take or how you were going to have a conversation with somebody. Can you remember a time when the influence of your mom's mentoring in some way 
influenced you to have a conversation in a different way than you would have without that influence and impact of her lessons and guidance? Oh, for sure. I could very distinctly remember um, in my early days at Procter & Gamble, Bill, when I was just cutting my teeth as a leader and trying to discern and determine what it really means to be a leader. It was one of my first few jobs where I had managed others. And uh, Bob was what we called an assistant brand manager at Procter & Gamble. Uh, Procter & Gamble is a huge company now of over, geez, I don't even know how many employees now, 100,000 employees. It was based in Cincinnati. So this is where this experience happened. I remember Bob had a real temper problem. He was getting results and they were good results, impressive results, but he was blowing up bridges along the way. Nobody wanted to work with him. He was very difficult to get along with and thought it was okay to get what he wanted to express anger, explosions in the middle of meetings. I never dealt with anything like this before as a young manager. I remember lessons from my mom and thinking, what would my mom do? My mom would remember the importance of culture. She had told me before that you get the culture that you allow. If you have one person like this, somebody who goes unaddressed and that kind of behavior can have a toxic impact on the culture. I could hear her in the back of my head telling me that this can't go unaddressed. No matter how good this guy's results are, I really have to attack the problem and help him to understand the impact he was having through these temper tantrums, the impact that was having on the culture as well. I could hear my mom's voice to this day in the back of my head when I finally engaged and had that first discussion with this guy. And it made a big difference. How did it go? What were some of the behavioral changes that took place? At first, he pushed back and it was very uncomfortable and I worked my way through it. And I think he came to see that he wasn't showing up in the way that he thought he was. He thought he was being authoritative and making decisions and being a leader. He wasn't understanding the perception that he was leaving and the impact he was having on the way he was getting results through this constant showing of anger. He thought he had learned from some prior bosses that that's the way it worked. And I was able to help him. You can still get results, build the business and build the organization along the way by helping show him that there was another way and practicing with him different ways he could express his anger and get results. He learned over time and changed his habits became one of the best employees in my shop. That's something. I think that you also probably are underplaying the difficulty or the challenge of this. Was he also older than you when you had this interaction with him? You're responsible for someone who is a bit more seasoned, had a few more years on you. Was that the case? I'm, I'm guessing it probably was. Your instincts are right, Bill. Didi was. I remember he was about five or six years older than me. And I just, I drew on what I had learned earlier from my mom and from early leadership lessons on. A lot of times when someone's older than us in our management position, a lot of it comes back to just showing them that you have their back. Acknowledge the value they bring to the table as much as you can. Show you've walked a mile in their shoes and that you're still certain they have experiences that you don't have. Yet, acknowledging that, the incremental value they bring above you, even though you're in the leadership position, is step one. And just really making sure you're coming from a place of showing them you've got their back. I employed both of those tactics with this gentleman who was older than me, and it really paid dividends because we really ended up building a tight bond thereafter. It's knowing what these things are knowing how to approach them makes all the difference because the message doesn't change. You're not looking to force him in a particular situation. You're making it safe enough for him to hear the information and understand that there's an even better way to operate. Because as you also pointed out, he thought he was doing things that were expected of him by being angry because he thought probably it was going to get people to pay attention to the importance of whatever he was communicating. That's right. Bill, I'm sure you've learned this too over the years. People don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I be a horrible producer? How can I blow up the culture around me? We're all products of the environment that we work in. I learned that early on. A path was molded for him and carved and shaped by other people that thought that kind of behavior was okay. Sometimes all it takes is a loving, caring, concerning touch to show there's another way forward. That's all someone needs to change. So something that's clear to people, but really isn't acknowledged often, is that none of us are born managers. <laughs> that's the truth. We, we may grow up in family situations where we have to develop some of those skills. We may get them 
happen from sports or performing arts or some sort of activities that give us some of those tools and, and experiences and bring out some of those skills that we have. But it's not until we're actually in the role that it makes the biggest difference. Middle management is a vastly important role. I remember reading in your book, it's more important to study by Stanford University and University of Utah said that it improves productivity more to take a poor middle manager out of a position and put in a stronger one than it does to even add an incremental worker to the team. Can you talk about the difference that middle managers day in and day out in organizations as large in Procter & Gamble or as small in a team of three? You're right, Bill. That study blew me away. Just for your listeners, I'll start with just the most basic of definitions that a middle manager is anybody who has a boss and is a boss and must lead from the messy middle, as I like to call it, up, down, and across their organization to do their job. It can even be somebody who doesn't manage others yet, but they're aspiring to. When you apply the definition that way, that applies to all of us, even small. I know you have a, a huge crowd of small business people and entrepreneurs that listen. Even entrepreneurs at some point may have to report to a board. So more than you would think fit the definition of middle manager. It was incredible to me as we did the research for this book, Bill. We talked to thousands of middle managers, ones that are successful in their company. And we saw over and over again, one stat that blew me away, middle managers account for almost 25% of the variation in revenue in the average company, regardless of the size. 25% of the variation in revenue, which is triple that of people whose job is to innovate. That's all they focus on is innovation. We saw it over and over again. I remember someone telling me and calling the middle manager the backbone of the organization. And that really stuck with me. That's exactly what they are. They're the backbone of the organization. The middle managers improve employee retention and attraction. Just 20%, they can improve it on their own by approaching it with the right skill sets. Two thirds of employees polled say that middle managers are way more important than C-suite managers. I think it's because they're at the intersection, Bill, of the horizontal and vertical information flow in a company. And they have a disproportionate ability to influence so many things in so many directions. And it's a group that I just, I fell in love with years and years ago and felt like somebody had to produce a playbook and a manual for these folks. There's enough books written about C-suiteers and there's enough books written about people that are on the front lines of management that just started. People have been ignoring that huge swath of people called the middle manager. That was something I was really passionate about, a hole I wanted to. Do you remember the point where the idea for the book had its genesis? Were you in a conversation with someone or were you just reflecting on all the work you were doing? What was the starting point? Yeah, it was a kind of a growing tsunami, if you will. It started actually, Bill. It was probably when I was in my 15th year at Procter & Gamble. I stayed there for almost a quarter of a decade before I retired from P&G to do this, to be able to write books and speak about my experiences and be a researcher and teach at Indiana and all those things. I remember it starting to on me that looking around, I'm a big continual learner. I'm a big person who buys books and I devour them and I take notes. You know, I'm that guy that, that has 68 post-it notes in the business book when I read one, you know. And I remember going through a, a, a period where I literally couldn't find any on how to lead from the middle. That there was just, the marketplace was flooded with, if I want to be a CEO, I've got every book that I can think of. Or it was flooded with a slice of the moment. Like, oh, here's yet another book on emotional intelligence, or here's another book on whatever the flavor of the month. I just couldn't find any help. As I looked around me at Procter & Gamble, I saw how difficult the job of being a middle manager was. You have to influence your boss and your boss's boss. You have to influence people around you that might not necessarily want to be influenced or that you have no formal authority over. And of course, you got to show up as a hero to your people that report to you. The mixture of all of that is just, it's so difficult. I can talk about some of the difficulties that we found in middle managers in, in particular in a moment. But yeah, that's when it started. So let's look at that. You talk about the importance 
importance of influence and influencing people. For those who are aspiring to a role of management, they think it's just about telling people what to do. <laughs> if you just say, make a great product, develop this project, make everything happen on time and under budget, that's how it works. Yet the reality is starkly different. What's an insight that you could share that allows someone who is aspiring to gain more responsibility in his or her role to think about in preparation for becoming a middle manager? I can do that in probably about, I don't know, six or seven words, actually, Bill. As we conducted this research across just hundreds and hundreds of companies of all sizes and talked to thousands of middle managers looking for, or talking to the successful ones and looking for themes, one of the biggest things I can tell your audience to prepare for a role in middle management or to succeed right now in one is to keep asking yourself before you take an action that's going to impact the troops, ask yourself this one question, am I about to assist success or avoid failure? Which is it? Because if you think about it, a lot of the actions we take place in fall into one of these two camps and they look very different. If we assist success, especially in the middle of an organization, you're doing things like investing time in your people, no matter how busy you are, right? When you take the time, especially when you don't have it for them, they'll notice investing in your people and really sticking your neck out to take risk, getting the team the resources they need, fighting for their goals up the chain. You know, these are assisting success behaviors. Avoiding failure behaviors are very different. You micromanage, right? You've been in the corporate world long enough, Bill, you can remember some of these things, right? It's when you micromanage. It's when you carry parallel paths so that you can cover your butt along the way. It's when you procrastinate. It's when you try to be a perfectionist because you're trying to avoid failure. I find so much of the activities we do from the middle can fall into one of these two camps. So I got into a habit of consistently asking myself before I would engage in something, an action that would affect my organization. Which of the two am I about to do? I'd catch myself quite a bit where I'd be like, okay, if I'm honest, I'm being conservative. What I'm about to do is all about avoiding failure not really a productive way forward as a leader, especially one from the middle. You're not saying you never do anything that has CYA associated activities. You're just saying look for the pattern, look for the balance so you can become aware of it. Exactly right, Bill. And we all have to do some of those things for whatever reason. Sure, I've had to order an extra round of tests on something to make sure that the product was ready to launch in the marketplace and some could view that a concern. We all have to do that from time to time, but I did it with awareness, self-awareness of why I was doing it. And it it creates this mental level where you're like, all right, I had to do that to be conservative for the business, to avoid failure. I want to add back to the tally of assisting success, though. It creates this kind of mental ledger that you draw from over time. I find it very useful. That is a terrific question. I hope people learn from that and can apply that because it's a simple gut check as to what your intention is for any action you're about to take. Now, one of the other people that you quoted was Mary Galloway from the Jack Welch Management Institute. She said that middle managers are like the middle child of an organization. They're often neglected by senior managers and blamed by their direct reports for shortcomings. At the same time, they're expected to be as charming as the youngest and as responsible as the oldest. That's quite a tough role to fill. Is it helpful for people to learn that these are the expectations in order to be successful as a middle manager? Yeah, I I think it is. In fact, in the book, I go into about the middle manager job that makes it so uniquely challenging. Just very quickly, I talk in the book about an acronym, SCOPE. It's the scope of the work. It comes down to self-identity problems that middle managers have. And I'll, I'll touch back on that one again, because it's very important. Conflict problems, right? That being in the middle means you get conflict from all angles. Your boss hassles you, your employees resist you, your peers won't cooperate. The O stands for omnipotence. Middle managers feel the need that they have to know everything, right? Your market share went down in Peoria. You better know the reason why. And then the P and the E stand for the physical 
physical and the emotional that can happen to middle managers. I wanted to go back to that S for a second, the self-identity problem that middle managers have. Because most people say, Bill, I got it. The, un- the biggest unique difficulty of a middle manager is it's got to be the workload, right? The amount of work that people pile on them because it comes from every direction. And yes, for sure, that everybody at every level in an organization has a heavy workload. The biggest challenge we saw in our research, Bill, was that middle managers suffer from what neuroscientists call a micro-switching issue, which is where all day long, they have to switch back and forth and change roles. It's exhausting. One moment, they have to be deferent to their boss, right? They're in the middle of the organization, so they have to switch from being deferential to their boss. Then they have to be assertive with their employees. Then they have to be collaborative with their peers. Sometimes that happens all within the same meeting, or they'll have to switch roles when they weren't expecting to do that. Tell me if this has ever happened to you. You're sitting at a meeting, you're running your team meeting, your boss pops in, and all of a sudden, you have to take on a different mode. It turns out all the hats that we wear as middle managers requires us to switch back and forth between those hats. It is absolutely exhausting mentally to have to switch back and forth and be able to do that. Back to your original question, I think it's important for middle managers to understand the challenges. I've coached a number of new middle managers who were reporting to senior executives, and some of them like the exhilaration of being in demand, and they don't see where that goes. What is the caution you would offer if someone says, I really like having, every time I look, there are 20 emails that need my response. I've always got voicemail. And they feel that sense of being needed in an organization. Have you come across that? What advice do you have for people who have that sense of being integral as part of their role? It's interesting you bring that up, Bill, because it's a two-sided coin. We found that kind of along the spirit of what you're talking about in our research, the people that were most successful in the middle saw that all those transitions that they had to make all the time, right? How needed they were all the time. That didn't make their job segmented. It meant it was integrated, that the hundred jobs that they had to do were actually integrated into one job they were uniquely suited to do very well. So that's the plus side of the coin. When you can take a look at your in-demand, not a lot of people can be as in-demand as you are and still do the job. And here's the other side of the coin. As long as you don't literally divide yourself into a hundred different people need to get a hundred different slices of my time and my life and my job. You have to be able to integrate it and to say, my job is to sort out and prioritize. It's one integrated job and I have to be able to discern what's urgent, what's important, where do I spend my time? So the energy for the job is required. You just have to be careful to draw boundaries within the middle of that. And and boundaries are what we're talking about that help people avoid burnout, avoid being overcommitted, avoid working all hours and losing that sense of self. Because even though you're important at that level, you could lose something more important, even though you're being very reactive. You're losing the ability to be proactive and start to look ahead and to bring up some of the other people in leadership so that you can eventually move out of the role. Isn't that something that many middle managers enjoy and don't really think about taking the next step and how they can create people who can step into their role so they can step into the next role? It's 100% true, Bill. It's so funny. The subtitle of the book is A Playbook for Managers to Influence Up, Down, Across the Organization. The middle managers that don't do as well, they forget that their job is to lift as they climb. It's not to pull the ladder of success up when they've achieved success and they kind of run with it and be all about them. Your job is to bring up the next generation, right? You have to manage and lead down and invest down in employees to help create ultimately your replacement, but also because it's the right thing to do for the business and and for the culture. I spend an awful lot of time in the book helping people with exactly what you're saying, Bill. Develop the skill set that's going to get them promoted, but also approach it with a mindset that helps you become a world-class coach to build up the organization around you so you can lift it up as you climb. It's something that just makes the business stronger by developing that bench strength. Yes, that's very well said. And it's not just watering the tallest sunflowers. It's not just pulling the weeds. It's a lot of times middle managers, the biggest impact they can have are on 
that big swath of 80% of people in the middle of an organization that are good, they're just not yet great. That's where we can make a lot of our biggest impact. Scott, you research, you talk to people, you coach others. What's an example of working with a middle manager that wasn't as clear about the responsibilities he or she had that learned from your methods and your research that you were able to... Can you talk about an example? Oh, sure. I'll give you an example of a guy named uh, Ryan. He's actually the chief op- operating officer now in a consumer packaged goods industry. Actually, a medium-sized company. I'll withhold the name of the company just for Ryan's sake, but because he sought my help out. But it's a medium-sized, it's a, a company based in the middle. I did an awful lot of work with Ryan on helping him to understand how to manage up, how to manage down, how to manage across. One of the things I think that helped him the most was he was having real difficulty with his boss, regardless of company size, Bill. I think we've all had moments in time where we encounter a boss that we're not necessarily getting along good with. If your listener hasn't had that happen to them, even in a small, it will happen. It's inevitable. This was Ryan and he was really struggling. So when he got a hold of leading from the middle, he gave me a call and I engaged in some coaching with him to help him to understand that he was really struggling with expectations with his boss. He thought that he was clear on his expectations with his boss. So I arranged to do a a little experiment between him and his boss. I've actually done this well over 300 times now where we will study a boss and a subordinate and we will ask them like an FBI informant piece of research. We put them in separate rooms and we say, hey, are you clear on what your boss expects of you? And we ask the other way around. Hey, are you clear on what your employee expects of you, dear boss? And invariably, yeah, we're good to go. We know where we're at. But we find, Bill, that in over 80%, if you want to be precise, 81% of the case, there are material breaches and basic understanding of expectations. So this is what was happening with Ryan. He was not as clear on expectations as he thought he was. Because when I interviewed his boss, I found out that Ryan was way off in what was expected of him. So we engaged in a simple exercise called the good to great exercise, where Ryan and his boss sat down together in a room with my help. It's very simple. Think of a simple bill with three columns. The first column is a key skill that's important at your company. The second column is the word good. The second column, the third column is the word great. You sit down and we started with leadership and we asked Ryan's boss, what does good leadership look like to you? I want to see you write down the definition. And we talked through that. Okay. Now what does great leadership look like to you? What we found is oftentimes we're not as clear on expectations with our boss because laziness sets in. The boss assumes you know exactly what's expected of you. There's no um, kind of follow-up for that. When you put tension to it, by forcing the boss or vice versa to spell out what is good, but then what is great, it takes that tension, the tension takes away the lack of precision. It forces precise language and they got instantly clear on what was really expected of Ryan and he took off. I think that's great uh, as an example to talk about how to coach people into getting better relationship expectations together. Because people may easily say it's lazy, but oftentimes it's just overlooked because many times in, in one-on-ones all too often default to simple status checks rather than developmental opportunities. Can you talk about how to elevate one-on-one meetings in other ways in addition to this good to great exercise? Part of it is one-on-ones become so powerful when you give really powerful feedback. I go into the book an awful lot about the art and the science of how to turn a what can be a transactional discussion. And sometimes, by the way, it's okay. One-on-ones can be transactional. Sometimes you're just in with your boss and you just need, hey, I need this, sign this. Can I do that? Good. You're in and out. That's okay. 80% of the time, though, it's an opportunity to really have a coaching conversation. 
conversation. In the book, one of the things I go through is what I call the coaching conversation. I work through this with someone that worked for me by the name of Deb. Uh, I want your listeners to think of two funnels. One is sitting on top of the other so that the spout is up at the top. And then with the other funnel, they're glued together. Then there's a spout in the middle. So you got a spout at the top, a big fat middle, and then a spout at the end. That's the shape, the two funnels sitting on each other. They're sitting on top of another, but the spouts are putting, that is essentially the shape of a coaching conversation. I worked through this with, Deb actually works in uh, insurance business in a mid-sized company, probably about 2,000 employees in uh, Minnesota. I worked through this with her where you start a coaching conversation very narrow. Think of the spout up at the top. It starts defined. When the coachee comes in, you got to be very clear on what are you here for? What's the point of today's discussion? Because if you don't, things can go off the rails very quickly. It can be on a disorganized discussion. So you start out getting very clear on what do you want to get out of this discussion. In the middle, the fat part of the discussion, and most you know, coaches think, oh, this is where I need to be really brilliant. I need to bring my wisdom and my knowledge to the table and, and, and blow away my coachee with all the things that I know. Maybe not. Mostly you're there to seek to understand what the coachee wants to iron out the distortions that they may be bringing to the table if they're looking for a problem that they're trying to solve and to trigger options to guide them versus prescribe to them what they should be doing next. Then at the end is a much more finite discussion. Again, again, I go in the the book um, in a lot more detail on this, but you have to end the discussion with a very crisp, who'll do what by when? The the power five word question. Who's going to do what by? Let's make it time bound. Let's make it actionable and get the person to commit so that you're also clear on expectations. I remember helping Deb through the coaching conversation funnel and her, the productivity of her discussions just went through the roof to the point where employees were starting to look forward to discussions with her because they were now much more crafted and honed to be productive for all of them. So the role of middle managers is undoubtedly unique and it's also fraught with more challenges challenges than many people who haven't been in the role expect. Yet it's something that every business depends upon in order for fulfillment and operations and profitability because it all rests on the middle manager's ability to execute and be effective. How has the pandemic changed things from your perspective as to what middle managers need to be thinking about when we're working from home more often? There's more hybrid coming back, there are changes, but things have have fundamentally shifted where middle managers need to be aware of certain things. You've probably observed these on your own. What are some things that you'd recommend people pay attention to? And maybe one or two tips for being even more effective as a middle manager working remotely. Yeah, for sure. We've seen that. I think the most important thing is leadership is location agnostic. People have to understand that. I get the question a lot of, okay, so now I lead from the middle from home. What do I have to be able to do? You have to understand that leadership is still leadership. What's core to to you, that what seems right, the principles, they all still apply whether you're in person or whether you're distant. So starting by remembering WWLD, what would leaders do is job number one to remember a lot of your instincts are still going to be, okay, now that said, you know, what we're seeing, I do an awful lot of virtual keynotes and I talk to clients that hire me for, you know, doing virtual keynotes. They, They ask me the same thing you've asked, Bill. We're doing this meeting from virtual. We do everything from virtual. What do my leaders need to understand? So it's first to start that leadership is leadership. But then I think it's also important to remember that you still have the job of influencing and creating culture, which is more difficult to do for sure when you're at a distance. But it requires a little bit more intentionality to be able to do that, to think and to remember. We're getting a chance to see people in their home element. We're learning more about each other than we ever knew about each other before. There's more opportunity to cut across boundaries and ask for people to 
to do more and more work, to do more and more work. And we're seeing it, people are starting to get burned out. And then culture starts to take a backseat to all that because you get into productivity mode in virtual. Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting, I have to overmanage and, and make sure that people are productive and they forget about culture. Jump, it's not that culture takes a backseat, but culture development. <laughs> well because said. culture is always ongoing, yes. whether we intend to have an influence or a change or impact on it or not. Right? Well said. Better said that way. Culture development. The culture is always there, but the culture development tends to take a backseat because we make assumptions that, well, the culture is the work that we're going to get done because we can't be near each other. The culture is the fact that, yeah, I now see, Bill, I'm making this up. I could see in the backdrop of the last Zoom meeting we had that your kid ran by. I saw that you have a dog. I learned more about you than you ever wanted to know. Now we assume I know more about my people. That's my job as a leader. I've checked the cultural box. And you're right. It's the cultural development that can fall down. So it's just really important to remember to continue to invest in that. You can do it in simple ways, Bill. It starts by having like this. It starts by having discussions where you're looking people in the eye. As I talk to you right now, I have a little picture above the camera lens that has a group of people on it so that I imagine that I'm talking human beings face to face because otherwise we look down at our laptop and I could be talking to you like this and I'm not even really looking at you. So maintaining eye contact. You could do other little things like before a meeting starts, just taking a few seconds to do what I personal 60. You go around and say, okay, everybody tell me something that's going on in your life. You got 60 seconds. It can't have anything to do with work. We have found the importance of body language in is huge in building culture virtually. Just being able to, for the viewers that aren't watch, watching the, the video part of this, they're just listening. Right now, I have the camera set up so that you could see my hands moving and motioning because we know that about 50% of what we communicate happens through body language. That's an easy way to show like a thumbs up when someone, you're really enthusiastic about something that somebody's saying. You can use, it sounds crazy, Bill, but there's been whole studies dedicated to the impact of using emojis in email in a virtual world to put excitement behind a thought or a, that somebody has. So the all those examples to say it's about intention. Just saying that in a virtual world, cultural development, thank you for the help, Bill, is important, if not more so than it's ever been, to be very mindful of that. Scott, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Are you kidding me? This is what I live for. Let's do this. Great. When you were a teenager, what was a song that you loved? Oh, Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Don't even hold on to, oh God, the listeners don't want to hear. hold on to your dreams. The drill. It's a mantra of my life too, by the way. So where it started. So Scott, what do you do on a regular basis to to fulfill your mission in helping support, champion, and make middle managers more effective? By far, it's trying to reach as many people as I can through my virtual and in-person keynotes, where I bring a lot of energy and inspiration to the stage to bring to life what I talk about in the book, Leading from the Middle. Complete this phrase. I can see effective leadership when... I can see effective leadership when the person is operating from a place that it is not all about them. Complete this prompt. I know I'm being successful when... When I am focused on gaining approval, but I'm acting authentic to my true self. Scott, if you look back on the last year or so, what would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped that's led to the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? In the past year, I've been working really hard on stopping comparisons to others that are irrelevant. I focus only on comparing to who I was yesterday and whether or not I've become a better version of myself. Scott, you are incomparable and you have shared so many great tips with us today on my quest for 
the best. I want to thank you for sharing the idea and the example from your mom coming back and telling you about how she was crafting the culture at AT&T in her executive role. I want to thank you for talking about Bob, who was able to look at the assessment and be able to get the culture right at his company. I want to thank you for talking about the different challenges and opportunities that middle managers have, and also talking about the SCOPE acronym. Thank you for also talking about Ryan and also the example with Deb. All of those help round out ways of learning about how people can be effective middle managers and, in fact, be effective leading from the middle. So once again, Scott Mouts, author of Leading from the Middle, thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you so much, Bill. Before we say goodbye for now, Scott, where can we find out more about you and your work online? You can find me at scottmouts.com. Dot com. Uh, you can learn about all my keynotes that I do. And uh, for a free giveaway for your listeners, you can also go to scottmouse.com forward slash my quest, where they can get a free 30-page companion workbook that goes along with the book, Leading from the Middle, a, a plate for managers to influence up, down, and across the organization. That's fabulous. We're going to link to your website, scottmouse.com forward slash my quest, so people could get that gift that you've so generously offered. We're going to link to your social media so people could follow you. We're also going to link to places where people could get the book because because it is so valuable. Scott Mouts, author of Leading from the Middle, a playbook for managers to influence up, down, and across the organization. Thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world. And I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.